Hey, everyone. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Military Monday show. So this is every first Monday we get to chat with Mike Guardia. Mike is an award-winning author, a military historian, and a U.S. Army veteran. Today, we're going to be talking about communication in the military. From, you know, we're going to go to the Civil War. We're going to talk about the Telegraph, Morse code, on Avoco, code talkers, um, just how did this all go down? You know, I know there was flags used in some places. Now, mm-hmm. like, you know, we've got to think about the Internet. The Internet kind of really started in the military. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's really kind of fascinating how communication happens to say, hey, watch out. Something's coming your way. Duck. Um, yeah. So everyone go to Mike's website, MikeGuardia.com. Welcome back, Mike. How are you? Hey, Lisa and Nancy. I'm doing great. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Hey, yeah, we're, we're excited about this because yeah. communication, yeah. like, there's a side of me, like, when when they used to have those wars where they were marching towards each other, I don't right. know if the flipping the bird was legal at that time or if they knew about <laughs> it, but like, what? There's a side of me that would just go, like, flip the bird at the person across from oh, me and say, nice. I thought so, you were going to talk about, like, the pigeons they used. Oh, I know. Oh, that's another good point. Pigeons were used in in, um, sending messages, but as flipping the bird, I've got to bring that up. I didn't even know I was going to bring that up until as soon as we started recording. I'm like, I want to bring out the bird. Um, (laughs) Has that ever been used in any form of communication? It's got to have been at some point. Oh well, gosh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I, uh, I think I can. I think I can remember at the very least a handful of occasions where uh, you know the bird was used informally, along with many other uh, not so friendly hand gestures um, and informal communications amongst mm. many of the soldiers I knew. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's been uh, it's been around for quite a while. And uh, you know, on the uh, on the topic of on the topic of hand gestures. It's funny that you should mention that because uh, part of the uh, part of the cultural competency training that uh, soldiers have been getting throughout the past 20 years or so uh, include what gestures you can and cannot do if you're ever serving in a Middle Eastern country. And uh, and oddly enough, things that we take for granted are things that have good connotations here in the States means something entirely different uh, when you get Mm. to the East or mm-hmm. even to the Middle East, you know, for instance, um, here in America, we uh, interpret a thumbs up gesture as a sign of positivity, but in Eastern yeah. cultures, uh, that's actually incredibly mm. disrespectful. Um, you know, you also, uh, you know, you also have to be mindful when you're greeting somebody not to do it with your left hand, but instead do it with your right hand, right. since, uh, yeah. since right. left hand gestures are uh, considered not to be appropriate given the context. And uh, mm-hmm. not only that, you were uh, also encouraged not to show the bottom of your shoe to anybody because, oh. um, yeah, showing the, the bottom of your shoe to, or to anyone in uh, Iraq or any of the Arab states, for that matter, uh, is pretty much the equivalent of what the middle finger is to us. And wow. in, in a roundabout way, in a roundabout way, uh, we, we found that out. I think accidentally, because if we wind the clocks back to the early 90s when we were in Somalia and, uh, you know, we had the Black Hawk helicopters who were patrolling these racetrack patterns over Mogadishu, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the rangers and the infantrymen who would uh, travel aboard those helicopters would often travel with their feet hanging out the side of the helicopter. 
So when you look up and you see a helicopter with a bunch of uh, soles of combat boots that are, you know, that are hanging off the side and those soles are pointed down towards you, that uh, that right there is an interpretation like, oh, okay, well, these people are giving me the equivalent of the middle finger. And wow. Yeah, and we didn't even mean anything by it. I mean, that's just typically how we traveled in helicopters at those times. You know, if uh, if there was not adequate room or even if there was adequate room, you would still, you know, travel with your feet on the skids or they were hanging over the side. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was one of those things that we kind of had to learn the hard way. And, you know, I mean, the reasons for Somalia mm. turning out the way that it did, you know, I mean, there's many reasons out there as the day is long, but that cultural unawareness, I'll call it, uh, certainly did not help our mission. Wow. That's, a, that's, that's yeah. hard. I mean, because you, I mean, you're in a helicopter, that's, that's how you do it. And at the same time you're there to help. And, and, you know, it's like, because I know a lot of times, like in, especially Afghanistan, right. It was, uh, you know, here's all this going on. And yet Afghanistan was also a lot of rebuilding, right. Wasn't it about also recreating villages and helping even put in, you know, greenhouses and water systems and, and things like that. Am I wrong? Or like, that's what I always thought was part of that. Whereas like there's security, there was training and then also doing these villages. So that was another um, important thing of like your, your communication needs to be there. Right. Right. And you know, that's really what makes it hard um, for any operation. That's not a, it's not a conventional or a traditional shooting war. And okay. because, you know, it's very, I, I, well, okay. I will not say that it's easy. It's never really easy when you're, when you are at war in any capacity, but, you know, it, it seems to me that the, uh, that the shooting war, the act, uh, you know, the art of maneuvering against the enemy is the one part of the operation that doesn't require as many moving pieces as uh, securing the civil structure afterwards. Because, mm. you know, when the enemy surrenders or, you know, the enemy eventually collapses under the you know onslaught of the firepower, you know, how do you transition from becoming a warfighter into becoming a... Yeah, the adrenaline. Yeah. I was thinking you know, about that the other day about and can Adrenaline. you establish good ties with the communities? You know? Yeah. But even individually, how does a soldier go from that high octave octane? I shouldn't say octave. I'm in music land. Um, <laughs> you know, octane mode of adrenaline, right? To suddenly, right. hey, now we're going to play peacekeeper, but I'm still keeping watch. So it's like it's a never ending series of emotions to keep going, yet you're with the people so that obviously spurs you on too, because you, you know, um, but to have that emotion of here, I'm here to, you know, get you guys and shoot you down and all that. Right. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, now let's go build a garden. Like what the hell? <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's like a little bit too much. I mean, is it the same people or are we splitting? Are, are there two different people doing these things? Well, a lot of the times it really is the same people who have just finished a shooting war who now have wow. to switch gears and try to become peacekeepers. And, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's a shame because you, it's, you really can't transition that quickly from being a warfighter to being a peacekeeper within the context of the same operation. 
And it's funny you should mention that because that reminds me of uh, one of the Eagle Troop veterans that I interviewed for that book, The Fires of Babylon. Um, mm. uh, one of the uh, one of the veterans whom I spent considerable time interviewing was a gentleman named Chris Hedenskog, and uh, he was the yeah he he was the tank driver for H.R. McMaster in that conflict and he commented on that very same phenomenon. He said, you know, we had just gotten to the tail end of what was the most horrific tank battle of the late 20th century. And, Mm. uh, you know, we had plowed through what was considered to be the best and brightest of Iraq's Republican guard. And we had seen all this carnage happen in front of us and to transition from that, you know, we were still Mm. trying to process everything we had seen to transition from that to uh, having us be UN brokered peacekeepers on that line of demarcation while, you know, Iraq was trying to sign the ceasefire treaty, you know, it, it was something that we were not well equipped to handle. And, you know, you need to have a separate, you need to have a separate cadre that is geared towards that peacekeeping mission. You can't, you know, you can't take the, uh, you, you can't take the trigger puller and put them in a peacekeeping mission that quickly mm. after, uh, after after the combat ceases mm-hmm. because he needs time to decompress. He needs time to uh, yeah, he needs time to be you know psychologically brought down from that level of the high octane action. Yeah, and and I think yeah, isn't, isn't it also hmm. about like fitness levels? You know, um, like sometimes doing a lot of fitness and jogging and lifting weights and all of that really helps get that out like move it out of your system a little bit just right. like it's 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 almost like you have a new chemical it is it is a chemical right adrenaline and all of that is you got to push that stuff out i don't know anything about any kind of jogging or anything you don't want to see that but like <laughs> i i mean i do know from going on a hike or really getting out there that it can take all the that that feeling, that kind of feeling. I can't say I've been in that, but I've been in scary stuff and stuff where I've had to fight back to know that adrenaline feel. There's no way. I mean, that's why people are like, I need a damn shot of whiskey or something at the end, like hell, but that's still not going to get you until you actually move your body. It, it feels like you need to get it out of your body. Like it, it almost like a 72 hour, maybe obviously longer, but it, there's something that I think we do produce chemicals in our body that have to get out, right. you know, like we need an exorcism or something. Well, it is a lot of, <laughs> it is a lot of adrenaline, which yeah. goes to all your vital organs to right. tell yeah. it to stand up and get ready to fight. Or yeah. Fight. Yeah. You're either going to fight or run or play dead. I guess that that would be an option, but. You know? Nancy, you've seen that with animals. Mm-hmm. You don't mess with an oh, animal yeah. that's just taken down. Unless they're eating, once mm-hmm. they've, ta- they're, they've made their kill and they're eating, then they're fine. Don't get near it. But yeah, like if an animal's in that mode, you mess with that mm-hmm. mode, you're done. You're out. You're, yeah, you're done. You're done. Interesting. You know? you know, and then I was thinking too, when we, when we moved to Africa and um, we had a couple of um, like employees around the house, a gardener and such. And when you first started communicating with them, they would not look you in the eye, which made me feel like, what are you, what, you're shifty, what's going on here? 
You know, and it took me a yeah. while to realize, oh, so they do that when they're talking to someone who they have decided is higher up because you're the employer, you know, or it's your a lot, wife. It's a, it's a whatever. feeling of respect, yeah. Yeah, and so they're trying to show you respect, and my take on it was, what, what's up? What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're nervous because you're in a new country, and it was so odd that mm-hmm. they it's weird. They wouldn't look you in the eye, and that's I found that really you have to change. really disconcerting. Yeah, you have how do you, when you when you think about this kind mm-hmm. of communication, you have to change what you know, what you want to do for someone. Yeah, you want them to be comfortable, mm-hmm. and everything you've been taught is the opposite. Yeah, I remember when Nancy had her magazine mm-hmm. in South Africa, and I was 17 years old, went working for her right out of high school. But I mean, I was working for her before that. And she's like, Oh, you want to you want to go do ad sales? Well, you're going to go here. And she, oh, boy, she hired a, fr- uh, a friend of mine's friend, because he could drive me because at, at that point, I wasn't even legal to drive. And but I did drive, but no one knew. Um, anyway, yeah, there was ways to drive down the sidewalks. Anyway, mm-hmm. so anyhow, I would go to a place, North Park in Port Elizabeth at that point was uh, kind of industrial, but then there was also a very huge uh, Muslim section. And mm. I, yeah. you want to get your chops done, you go into industrial parks and try and do ad sales, cold calling, um, and also try to not be 17. And next thing I know, I'm in the Muslim area and I didn't care. And I actually went with Nasli, uh, another sales rep. And sort of, yeah, we went together, different person because it, it was, yeah, it was just one of it those days. Funny. I remember going there and I don't even think you knew we went up that far. And mm-hmm. Nasli and I went in there and there's like specific prayer times. And no matter what's going on, everybody like, drops to the floor and prays basically you know and it's okay to not be part of it but you respect right and you Mm -hmm. with anybody's religion if you're in their place you respect it but no matter what nasli could not get the time of day because she was muslim and but she was a a female muslim but now i'm white muslim i mean white not muslim and so it was a different thing but man to to I think I made one or two sales and it took me two years. No kidding. Well, it's of, your second class I, I mean, as a woman. I mean, it with. took it and so. it became a um, it became a thing of I'm not going to let it go. <laughs> I'm going to keep learning, and you build yeah, relationships. It, it, and the, but the it, African culture thrives on bargaining. That's what they yeah, do. and of course, in those in, in 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 those places, it takes time. I mean, mm. I have a friend yep. who um, lived in India, and she would buy rugs and clothing to bring here to the states and import it. But she would say, if you're going to buy anything, you spend all day in that tea shop drinking tea back and forth until yep. you get the price you want. If you want, if you want to just pay top dollar, go ahead and do it. But if you spend the day and you know that's what you're doing, that's what you put as an investment. Because it's a back and forth and they end up friends afterwards. And that is the truth. I also did end up friends. And um, I I mean, I I was able to go places that most people couldn't because of time. And and I'm going to say the word patience only because a lot of people today don't have patience for cultivating relationships long term. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You don't go into like if if I went in with my phone. 
and started looking at my phone like oh, we do now right. today, I would mm-hmm. never have mm-hmm. made it at all. So I kind of that's that's where I can resonate with that a little bit. I mean, I'm not in a war situation, though it was pretty tenacious out there at that time. Um, you know, so it's there's a there's a male female thing too. And so in the military yep. communication, that has to be different too about mm-hmm. communication, whether it's a male or female with different cultures. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, yeah. This was a, this was a big thing for um, the troops who were at the tail end of desert storm where, you know, they had to, they had to transition into being peacekeepers and they had to do a lot of civil patrols but that also factored into the equation when, when we were assigned to a peacekeeping mission in Bosnia, and mm-hmm. you know all of the all of the dynamics that that entailed. Because you know the the Serbs, the Croats, the Bosniaks, um, every every ethnic group that you could find in the former Yugoslavia, you know they all had different uh, they all had different cultural uh, traits that would be defined by region it would be defined by nationality and not only that you would also have religion because you know you had muslim Mm -hmm. serbs and they did things differently than the croats did uh you know and even more so you know in the wars that we fought in the aftermath of 9-11 you know you (laughs) it was uh, a very big uh swath of the dod budget to you know, provide all of these, uh, all of these cultural trainings for our troops who are going overseas because, you know, hey, it's a completely different culture. When you talk to mm-hmm. a lady, this is what you have to do. When you hear some, uh, you know, here are some uh, things to consider. And then you also have these female engagement teams where you had female translators and female uh, intel operatives going with these units in the field specifically for the purpose of interacting with Females who could have information on enemy and true movements, you know, because they weren't allowed to talk to the men. And if the men tried to mm. approach the women, you know, then you make yeah. an enemy out of the local tribal chief. And, you know, Dude. he could have been a good ally, but now you've just, you know, pushed him over into the enemy camp. Don't underestimate <laughs> the women ever in these situations, because I mean, seriously. Um, and they're also badasses. There's like, I wouldn't mess. Mm-mm. No. One of my first experiences in Kenya was trying to open a bank account. And all the guy kept saying was, but madam, where is your husband? I'm like, I don't have one. But madam. She went in the street and one. grabbed a white guy. The yeah, first so white guy I she could find. And, I found and she had to wait a while. Because this is in the yeah, 70s, everyone. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he, he turned out to be a lawyer, which was really cool. And I brought him inside. And, and he managed to, without lying, get the bank account open. It was really funny. And then I told Nancy, she needs to go back home to America. But she ended up working for him. Yeah. So, he <laughs> hired me. That was funny. But um, it. It's so like uh, staunch, at least it was back then, that there was no question about there was no way you're going to change anybody's mind about anything. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, yeah, it, it this sense it was it's, a it's, done deal. This is how it is, Either. and that's that. You're in get that way or get out. It's different though for military, I think, and also during a war, like you were mm-hmm. saying, you know, um, and after 9 11, that was a big shakeup. And do you, I mean, where 
I don't know if I should ask this, but I'm going to, and you can tell me to never ask it again, but how close are like the CIA and the FBI with the military in regards to communication Ooh. of when stuff is going down? I know that's a, I shouldn't ask that or can I, I mean, well, I don't know. I, 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 if I, if I had had a high enough pay grade in the military to be able to tell you, um, I would, but, uh, you know, all, all I heard at my level, um, at, at the company grade level was that, uh, well, I know that there were operations involving the FBI and the CIA. I know that there was sharing of information. I mean, shoot, we, uh, we even had a joint task force headquarters, uh, that was shared, um, that, that the army shared with the department of Homeland security and INS, um, in out, out in El Paso, you know, using, uh, mm. using DOD resources to interdict oh, a lot yeah. of the drug cartels. So I know that yeah. there's information that gets passed amongst all those agencies, um, you know, in, in any operation overseas and any, uh, any, uh, yeah, any overseas garrison that we have, mm. you're always going to have a few CIA spooks running around sharing information, you know, with the G2 cells, um, how well that information is shared and how often it's shared and whether the left hand talks to the right hand as well as they should. Um, I, I really don't know. Uh, well, it's interesting too, because there's so many un- different, op- like you were saying, the word operative is such a cool yeah. word. Like that, mm-hmm. whenever you read that in a novel, you're like, Ooh, stuff went down, mm-hmm. you know, something's yeah. up, you know, but um when you when you think you you think about also like the Navy SEALs going out and um, I I had like when a boss at, at one time who was a Navy SEAL actually a couple of people I worked with that were Navy SEALs mm-hmm. and the one well he was Cherokee one yeah. Carl you worked with him it's crazy um, he was he was Cherokee and worked and he was in this in Navy SEAL and one of the very <laughs> few people in in like that we've ever met that could walk up behind us and us not know. Oh, my gosh. What, one, He's one day, rare. It's rare. It's really. Remember when he got on the roof? Yeah. He, I mean, he yeah, would, he, I mean, he, he would sabotage our house. You'd come home and he would be inside somewhere or hanging somewhere or doing something insane. Yeah. And um, he, he, yeah, he was kind of like a crazy badass. And mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, this was in 94, yeah. 95 that we knew he, him. He and, would, and he would get on the, on the roof and as he walked outside, he'd jump down behind you from the roof of the house and, and you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear him. You yeah. Hey, wait I mean, I'm wondering I like something. Yeah. He was, was like so he, scary. So I wonder oh, about like creepy. communication with that kind of level of Navy SEAL sniper level, like because he, he was like silent and, and he was the sweetest guy, but I always looked at him like, I don't uh, ever uh, want to mess with uh, you. Like, uh, you don't, I'm no, never no, going to no, win. No, no. I'll never win against you. Like for no. whatever you're doing. Uh-uh. And smart. so, um, yeah. What, what, what do you think, Mike, with that? Like that kind of is communication when you're being silent, like the other Navy SEAL I knew, Ben, he did a lot of like actual underwater mission stuff. And he was like, they're underwater. And that was in the same time frame. This is in the mid nineties. And he like, they had communication underwater. So what was going on with these guys? You know, like how do you talk when you have to be quiet? 
How do you well, signal to each other? Well, uh, a lot depends on the ambient light. You know, there are hand and arm signals um, mm-hmm. that that uh, I learned as a soldier to to communicate different things. Uh, you know, there was also um, there was also yeah, there there were also certain devices that you could use. There were um, there were certain cipher texts and uh, for for operations where you had to be on radio silence. Uh, normally, you had a uh, you had what was called a you you had what was called a blue force tracker, and that could at least give you situational real time awareness of where all your elements were on the mm. battlefield at any given moment, and. If uh, if voice is inevitable, a lot of the uh, a lot of the radio systems that we use have what's called a whisper function. It's a dial that you turn on the radio apparatus itself, and you can essentially whisper into the microphone. And then on the receiving end, it's amplified to the amount of decibels that would be needed if you were hearing somebody talk in a in a normal voice only wow. a few feet away from you. Wow. Now, if I ever had one of those, it would be really dangerous. That's I'd be cool. like, hey, big boy. <laughs> I'd be whispering all kinds of stupid stuff I shouldn't just for the fun of it. But you can't do that in the middle of a war. Do you, oh, come on. You guys have to have some humor partway through, oh, right? Oh, okay. So it's not just me that immediately goes. That, it's like, like Nancy, Nancy and I want CB yeah. radios. In, in, we want a oh, CB gosh. radio on the road because... We want to say hi to the truckers that are the good truckers, you know, mm-hmm. that do help you through situations at times. And we just want one and just go, yeah, you know, hey, big boy, you know, I don't, I, I suppose I shouldn't be saying hey, hey big, big boy. boy. On, no, anywhere. I don't think so, Lisa. But, I, but, but no, I mean, there's, but I'm also fascinated by how that changed because it's like ham, ham radios. Weren't ham radios at one point part of military? Like, I got to oh, go back sure. to that. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember like my friends' dads having them and grandfathers. And like I'd be out there playing with my friends, going, I actually want to go hang out with your your you know, your old man kind of thing, you know, and just go, you know, play ham radio because and now look where we are doing. Well now look at us doing internet radio and Zoom and I mean, whoever thought it would be this now? I didn't think that when I was a kid, but those I mean, that kind of thing, um, even my step-granddad was in Guernsey during the occupation when um, the Nazis invaded uh, the Channel Islands uh, between England and France. And they they tried mm-hmm. to take everything, including his radio, but he hit his radio and he yeah. managed to hook this up and make his own batteries and make it run so he could hear what was going on in Russia and in other countries, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty badass. Yeah. He yeah. was like, he could do his own radio stuff. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's pretty crazy. And so that brings me to even the very first reason of why we're having this show today is when you were on the show talking about the Normandy landings for our, our it was our second D-Day show. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about one of the men in one of your latest books, The Combat Diaries. Everyone, by the way, Mike, it's 25 books. Am I right this time? Yes, ma'am. Oh, there you go. Yay. I get a, I get a lucky star. Uh, the Combat Diaries, <laughs> True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II. I love this book, but you shared a story on that. And I would, I, would you mind repeating it for those who may not have heard it? Because I still yeah. want to hear it again. It's so cool. But that's what sparred like this whole like, hey, let's 
let's get this, or I should say spurred, get this. Um, I'm just excited about it, like how communication happens in battles. And that's why we're doing this podcast uh, topic mm-hmm. today. Yeah. So uh, this is a story about a gentleman named Bill Smith, and he was a young lieutenant at the time. Uh, he was a young field artillery officer, and um, specifically, he was what you call a forward observer. And uh, in, in technical terminology, that makes him a fire support officer. So he is going to be uh, the lead element out there who is coordinating um, offshore artillery support um, to prep the beaches in Normandy. And several hours before the main force of the invasion ar- arrived on Normandy Beach, he had Bill Smith, who was out there several hours before. This was in the pre-dawn hours, you know, where he essentially wades uh, ashore in something that can only be described as a uh, a slightly bigger floating apparatus than a tire's inner tube and, mm-hmm. and armed with nothing more than his sidearm uh, map and a uh, small, um, yeah. And, 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 and small mm-hmm. little glow in the dark light, you know, he's able to feel his way around uh, the beach in the darkness. Wow. And, and, and uh, at, at several points throughout the pre-dawn hours, you know, he's calling in artillery fire, uh, from offshore onto the German defenses on the beach. And, you know, it just goes to show how important that communication is and how much mm. of a, how much uh, of a priority that the allied command placed on maintaining the radio equipment, because he was even told by one of his instructors before he went um, off out into the night that, you know, Hey, we can, uh, if, if anything else, guard this radio with your life because we can replace mm. a second lieutenant but we can't replace one of these expensive radios <laughs> you know? and yeah nice and, yeah, and so <laughs> while while he, he's using this handheld radio as the only source of communication that he has to uh to um all of these all, all these offshore batteries you know he's uh, he's able to call in he's able to adjust fire he's able to uh he's wow. able to do pinpoint strikes on these German positions. And, you know, what, uh, what gives you um, an, an added sense of just how uh, urgent and how critical this mission was and really how dangerous it was. I remember him saying that when the first volleys fell on the German positions in the pre-dawn hours, uh, the searchlights of their watchtowers lit up and they started scanning mm. the beach because the Germans knew oh my that God. if they were getting uh, offshore artillery fire that was this accurate, then there had to have been an allied spotter somewhere on the beach. Yeah. And he said, oh, good yeah. thing I was able to hide under a piling of rocks because uh, those uh, searchlights, they crisscrossed over me uh, a number wow. of times. And every single time that uh, that they glided over my head, all they saw was the rocks. They never, you know, thought mm. that, hey, underneath that rock piling is probably where the spotter is. Dude. Oh. Gary. Dude. That's that's messed up. Like I'm I'm just yeah. saying to be out there and they're going around and yet you're holding on to this radio, but it was him that let people know where to land on Normandy Beach, right? Yeah, well, they already knew generally where they were going. His his big job was to just make sure that he registered all of the offshore gunfire to soften up the defenses as much as he could. Wow. Yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it was it was uh, quite it was quite an impressive um, experience for him, you know, and uh, also one that was very heartrending too. Because finally, after the sun came up, 
and uh, all of the um, all of the main body forces from the First Infantry Division came uh, came across shore, you know, on Omaha Red Beach. Um, after the after the firing had stopped and the beachhead was secure, only then did he emerge from his hiding place. And uh, you know, now that now that the sun was fully um, high in the sky, you know, he could see all of the uh, carnage in front of him. And you know, he just said that one of the hardest things in his life was seeing the bodies of his fellow troopers, you know, just floating there mm-hmm. in the surf. And he said, my God, wow, wow. You know, we, we, we took, we, we, we got, we, we got a toll hold on the continent, but man, it's such a high cost. And, you know, I pray for the souls for all of these guys. And, wow. um, and, you know, he, he was, he, he, it was already a, a poignant moment for him because at that point in the war, he had already lived about twice as long as the average life expectancy for a forward observer should have been. Mm. Wow. Mm. That you know, this is wow. I mean, in mm. World War II, we didn't think we were gonna get World War II after World War One, but we learned a lot from World War One, right? So oh, yeah. did that help in his communication to be able to have I mean his I mean that's just still badass, right? But did that help him have all and the military and, and the force then, everybody there involved, have that communication? Did that come from learning from world war one do you think well i the tactical communication and those systems themselves i think really did come from world war one they uh they reinforced a lot of the lessons that uh we had to learn through trial and error and things that we got from the fellow allies before we came in towards the end of the war but uh you know just really stressed the need for having really tight communication and not only that, having the need for um, instant communication because trench mm-hmm. warfare uh, changed the face of war so much at that point. And, uh, and, and you really went from a maneuver based concept of warfare where you could communicate different commands and you could communicate different ideations through a series of horn blasts and trumpet blasts and, mm-hmm also drum rolls and uh, you would have, you would have these different relay stations at uh, points along the battlefront who would, you know, who would relay those signals, you know, through any number of successive bugle calls. But now that everything had gone static and you were in this, uh, you were in this trench based form of warfare, you had to get uh, instant communications from one point to another and you had to do it silently. Well, Mm. that was where the telegraph really, uh, saw a much much more widespread use than it had previously, and uh, not only that, you also had radio communications come into their own uh, right mm. around this time. I mean, you know, nothing to the extent that you would have seen in World War II, but you know, being able to transmit real time voice messages across wow. um, across a very large swath of the battlefront was uh, something that was not only revolutionary, but yeah, you know, at the same time, uh, all the different, all, all all of the competing militaries were trying to find ways to listen in on the other person's traffic, and that gave rise to you know all the different, uh, all the different operational security measures that communications have today, like you know like ones that are able to hop from one frequency to another automatically so that the enemy can't listen in, you know things yeah. that are. Things that you know, communications that are sent with multiple layers of encryption, so that it's very, very hard to hack in on any of the radio traffic. Well, that's but that's really interesting when you go back to that and how we, you know, when we first started our radio show, 
on Blog Talk Radio, which we're, we're mm-hmm. not there anymore. We're, we've moved platforms, but we're on everything, though. Um, all main platforms, everyone, just, <laughs> just to be positive here. Um, but we started there. And they were one of the first where you could call in and be online. And, you know, it was the only one really that you could do, you know, and do live. And I mean, even our sound effects, you couldn't really do half of what, I mean, it, it was still a very uh, organic grassroots project, but it was frigging cool to do. But, it, and so then it grew and it was like probably the third year. And we're talking about 16, 17 years ago when we started this. It's crazy. They started, we were in it six months in, and this was before the word podcast was really there yet. And right. we're doing all this and we're like, this is the coolest thing on the planet. And that's what led us from being Southwest blend to being, hey, we're global. We're talking to winemakers. We're talking to people all around the world. Screw this. Why not? You know? And it was weird because it was about the third, fourth year in where the bots came in and these uh, yeah. DDoS or DDS server attacks happened. And they would happen during shows. I mean, we got blasted from... Um, What's that Westboro Baptist Church um, attacked us once? We had bottom bottom boy. We had all these things happen to us during shows that that they would attack us, and um, it became very weird. And you know, your numbers—you couldn't really believe your your listenership numbers Mm -hmm. because they would just fluctuate out of like insanity. In in like you know, come on, you know. I know it's still like a new phenomenon at that time, and but no. and so it was a very weird thing, but so there, and it's still a very interesting thing where we're at today with it because mm-hmm. it's the you internet is know. still not a hundred percent. It, I mean, look at it and look at TikTok, right? Mm-hmm. That's another thing I was going to say. Like TikTok is a weird thing of what we're all talking about now, and the you know, uh, in the government's looking at it because of China and all that stuff. It's kind of a. Mm-hmm. And people getting ransomed and hijacked and oh, whatever, all, whatever all those words are that are just like, hey, I've got your website and I'm going to take it until you pay me things. Yeah. So isn't that kind of similar from then? Like if you think we've just got into a different platform in a way. Yeah, you know, and it's uh, it's kind of alarming to see how quickly uh, some very motivated hackers and IT specialists can mm-hmm. find workarounds and find ways through all of these security measures. You know, it, uh, you know, uh, cyber warfare is something that goes on every day and uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't get, I, I, I don't, I don't think it gets even nearly half the press coverage that it should, but it represents mm-hmm. uh, such a clear and present danger. And, you know, you have cyber attacks, you have cyber defenses and, you know, it, it's going on, it, it, it's going on and on, um, on every on every side of the issue, you know, every side of the geopolitical divide. And you, know, you just have to wonder, okay, well, is it going to get to a point where one is going to overtake the other and mm-hmm. you know, warfare will spell the end of uh, any viable network? Is it going to get to a point where all somebody has to do is press a button and then, you know, suddenly, you know, every every viable network in the continental U S collapses, you know, planes fall out of the sky and uh, yeah. And these the smart cars with the drive by wire mm-hmm. functions, you know, suddenly. You, 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 yeah. 
suddenly yeah, go friendly. offline and they go haywire and then they all start crashing into these brick walls or these barricades or whatever or is it going to get to a point where you know you have like well, terminator or rise of the machines yeah but you, but and- but then listen i want the back mm-hmm. to the future car i'm with you on that by the way yeah. just saying but but this but this is how weird we've gone political on it in this country <laughs> which is is kind of a shame well, instead of actually of looking at hey you know to me like when y2k was going to happen all right. Oh, the gosh. whole band. I remember that, and I was just like, "Dude, we, we so had our, our band. We had a gig out in the desert. We were like, I, you know, let's see what happens." You know, I was like, "Hey, I know how to, you know, do things. I don't need the computer stuff to do things." And we were so not computerized like we are now. And that was, I think, it was the beginning of the dot com. You know, hey, we can do all this, which you know, I still believe we can do so many cool things with the internet. But it's about like, at, you know, whenever there's an opportunity, there's an opportunity for the criminal, right? right. <laughs> Opposition. And so that's the that's kind of the problem we have. And, and so we don't want to be regulated. All of us don't want to be regulated. But if you don't have regulation, how are they going to keep things safe? It's like such a weird, right. you know, mass regulation drama. And, and, and everybody yeah. politically or everyone politically are arguing. And I'm going... But you're actually arguing against yourself. Those who want freedom of everything actually no, really want to all protected. And then I'm like, come on, people. You're, you're right. not actually and, thinking. Yeah. And sense. that's kind of what I've told my students in years past. I said, you know, uh, one of the biggest things about the American experiment is that we're always trying to recalibrate and trying to find that right balance between individual freedom and mm-hmm. order individual freedom and what's good for the collective what 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 is good for the mm. collective health of society and the analogies that I give as I say okay well let's think of it as a spectrum on one end you have total freedom and then on the other end you have total control well you don't want too much freedom because if you have too much freedom then it leads to anarchy and it becomes like the right. wild west and you have a failed state kind of like somalia you know where mm-hmm. Everybody is just doing whatever they want. Everybody's off and everybody yeah. else. And then you have the rise of these yeah. warlords who pretty much, you know, just take control and people gravitate towards strong men. But if you have too much order, you become a police state, kind of like North Korea. Mm-hmm. So oh. how do you find that delicate yeah. balance in between? How do you find that Goldilocks zone to say mm-hmm. that, okay, well, it's the right amount of personal freedom, but at the same time, I got the right amount of control so that everything does not devolve into chaos and anarchy. I think it's called education right. on all levels. It's education and, oh, how do I put this? Well, you're um, talking more, to an educator, Nancy. Yeah, it's <laughs> education, number one, and moral education. Mm-hmm. Because when you, that's why I love history, because when you read history and you see what people did, you can, you can make up your mind, well, that was the right thing to do or that wasn't the right thing to do, but you can understand why it was done. Whether you liked what they did or not, you start to learn um, how people's behavior changes because of history, because of what happened in the past. You know, so we're, we're still evolving, you know, to get to the point where we don't harm each other. We're not greedy mm-hmm. or selfish. 
And I'm not talking communism, so please don't email me about that. And because every time you talk that way, people start thinking, oh, you want to share everything with everybody and everybody should be equal. Not talking about communism. I'm talking about being human. Yeah. The good part of being human. Well, I actually think what you're you're also saying, Nancy, also goes back to the military where I think people forget the other side of what the military does. Like we were talking about in the beginning with Afghanistan, how much the military does in rebuilding. And it's, it's, it's forgotten. People go, why are we just keep, why are we keep paying these places? You know, there's no war there anymore. It's not only whenever there's a disaster. Yeah. Military are there. Yeah. I mean, you've you've got, you know, your national guard is like Mm -hmm. right there, but, Honestly, I think there's so many roles of the military and, and that is important because whenever there's a drama, security has to happen. It, you know, I don't, I don't care if it's a wildfire. I don't care if it's a hurricane, if it's a national disaster like that, or it's a war. Whenever something has to be rebuilt, you need security. Yep. Period. You, wouldn't you agree, Mike? <laughs> You're in that yep. world. It's, it's true. You can't, you have to have that you have to have both. You can't just go, okay, you know, I'm playing Susie Homemaker today. That doesn't work because someone's going to no. do something stupid mm-hmm. because right. it's, it's whenever there's rebuilding that, again, it's that opportunity, right, Mike? Isn't that kind yeah. of that weird thing? Whenever there's opportunity. Well, it's not even rebuilding. It's like even when we were in the fires in Julian, um, people's houses were being looted during the fires. And the firemen were like going crazy, trying to round everything, uh, put barriers against the fires, get the people out of the way. And then you had people sneaking into other people's homes, looting. So it was like, you know, on the firemen. That was, that was it, a very small portion. Yeah, but, but yeah, it did but happen. Still, it did happen. But in, it, in a cozy it, little Mayberry town, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Mike, were you Mike? Yeah, this this is that thing too. Like when we talk about communication, like when Nancy and I went through all those fires, and it was a lot of them, yeah, and a lot of shifting, and a lot of weird stuff went down. Mm-hmm. And so we, Nancy and I, could just not even a hundred percent look at each other. There was almost to a point of, like, I can actually tell you what Nancy is doing right now in the other room, and I can't see her. Like that, that kind of communication. Do you get like that in the military where you guys are so side by side and get to know each other, good, bad, and the ugly, right? Oh, yeah. That you actually know each other's maneuvers and movements, even movements, right? Yeah, well, we can anticipate each other's moves and even at at time finish each other's sentences. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Isn't that kind of where sports goes too? How sports have absolutely Mm -hmm. teamwork happens. You know, it's like, oh, this person always moves to the right before he moves left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's it's like like there's fly always flies backwards before it goes forward. Henry Ford says, whenever you have a bad day, remember the airplane had to take off backwards to go forwards. Mm -hmm. He didn't say it exactly. He got it from the fly. Remember? Yeah, he did. I'm not talking about the fictional character. I'm talking about real flies fly backwards just a little bit before they can go forward. It's weird. Hey, The Fly is one of the best movies ever. Come on, Mike. You've seen it. Come on. That Wasn't that an 80s, oh. 90s movie? Oh, the Christopher Fly? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just making sure. Just making yeah. sure. I got to check in there. Okay. So, so I want to go back way back to the Civil War. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we mentioned we want to talk about, I want to talk, we want to bring also, uh, bring in, this is my way of bringing in the Navajo code talkers too. Um, so I, I think I told you after we recorded the last episode when we did the uh, Road to Independence of America, right? Um, mm -hmm. But you gave a, you gave me a really good um, history lesson. I think you gave a lot of people a good history lesson. That was brilliant. Um, and I told you about that Nancy and I had gone to this Civil War site in Oklahoma, Honey Springs Battlefield. And, you know, I was like, oh, I'm so cool. This is so cool because we were in their visitor center. It's brand new visitor center. And I photographed. They had all of these displays about communication and different flags meant different things. And I was like, Oh, I didn't even think of flags like duh, you know, but now beyond the flags, this civil war was like, in, I mean, the civil war, many, many people don't ever think of Oklahoma or the Southwest having a civil war. And it did happen. It went all the way to San Diego. I'm just saying we, we lived outside, um, uh, not Butterfield. Oh, gosh, it was outside Ramona. Oh, I'll think of it later when I'm supposed to. <laughs> there's a battle. There's actual historic site there of where the Civil War was fought. Even Arizona, Fort um, Fort Bowie was very instrumental even in the end of the Civil War because of the California column coming across and the Bascom affair. Anyway, Oklahoma, this site, Honey Springs, is insane because got all these families around and you had families fighting each other from different sides, white on white, black on black, Indian on Indian separating. How the heck? I mean, so when you think about it, families fighting each other, I mean, in that battle right there in their own turf, the communication yeah. has got to be bizarre. Like you can wave all your flags, you know, your cousin over there, you already know your cousin, you played, you know, games with them or whatever it was, you know, um, that's got to be, did you think that would, would you go to, I mean, does it move so fast that you don't get to read the other person across the field or, you know, and I walked some of those battlefields and that's where I got ticks. But anyway, um, mm. <laughs> just saying, spray yourself down before you do it. Um, and yeah. do walk it, do walk it. It's worth it. Um, it's a huge property with huge, you know, a lot of hiking trails and stuff. But um, when I was thinking even of when this battle went down in the summer there, I was like, holy cow, you guys were sweating bullets, you know, literally, and having to dodge bullets. The communication has to be really weird in the Civil War beyond the flags, if you know someone on the other yeah. side. Yeah, you know, and it's uh, it, it's one of those aspects of war that doesn't really get a lot of attention. And yet I, I think would make for a very in interesting psychological case study if they were to really dig deeper into it. But, uh, you know, even when, yeah, even if you have these units as large as I would say a regimental level, you know, you're, you've trained together so much that when you finally get to game day, you know, you're, you're so in sync and 
you uh you've gone through the drills so much and even if something uh and even if something either physically or metaphorically gets in your way you know how to adapt to it because you know how they say uh no plan survives first contact or you know even as mike tyson says hey everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face because you've uh because you've trained together for so long and you've built those bonds for so long you're you know able to uh you're able to anticipate how the other folks in your unit will uh, will hmm. improvise to something on the cuff, ah. and even when you uh, you know even you know if you um, hmm. even if you have that same type of connection with somebody on the other side of the fence, you know maybe someone who is uh, someone who's on the Confederate side, you know it uh, it makes for I think a very interesting case study because. You know, they say that uh, they say that some of the easiest battles to fight are when you or is when your enemy is clear, it's defined and it's predictable. Mm -hmm. And I think I think nothing could be more true in the case of the Civil War, since, you know, the the uh, the officer corps and uh, the training cadres all came out of the same schools of American military thought. So it was you know Mm -hmm. basically like uh, it was basically like fighting a twin brother for four years and uh you know just the question of uh which of these uh two identical twins are going to uh are going to run out of steam or going to reach the point of exhaustion first because mm-hmm. they're both they're both throwing the same jabs they're both mm-hmm. throwing the same right crosses and the same left hooks and uppercuts and and uh they they can they can time each other's sequences so it really just becomes a matter of uh who cries uncle first and in that case it was the south Wow! Well, well it's, it's Santa Anna and having his his mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. just oh let's just walk into the bullets. I mean, yeah. come on, seriously. Well, but the, I mean, but that's in war. The adrenaline will do a whole bunch. That's what I was talking about. Those chemicals but, at the uh, beginning. Really, I mean, and then the people just got shot, 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 shot. Yeah, no, that was, and then the guys behind step over the one who just fell down. Oh man, the Alamo oh. was bad. No, yeah, no, that, that, was bad. That, that was brutal, man. The Alamo was just a you know a bloody. It was a bloodbath. It, it that was crazy. I mean that that really, but you know, going back to that with you know people understanding each other, it is fascinating to me. You know, mm-hmm. having that that split side and understanding each other and what you're saying too, what you were saying about understanding that improvisation when a plan doesn't go through because you have your plan because that's kind of giving you the foundation and then everything changes, right? It's just, it's mm-hmm. it, no matter what, right. In anything we do in life, that's the way it is. You need you plan, A, B, you're, C, and D. You're, you're, yeah. You're going to go, <laughs> you're, um, you're going you're gonna to go apply for a job. You go, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to do this, do that. And as soon as you get there, it's not anything you thought. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. crap, man. Well, then you just have to, you pick up from what you've already developed in your mind and your plan. You know, you have to have that foundation. It's the same thing in, as a band. You know, Mike, um, you know, being in, in music, you know, it's like you get up on stage and someone like just totally screws up somewhere which it, it always does if something's going to happen or someone like mike goes out or something goes out you have to improvise right there and then and it in a band has those looks at each other they they already know who and it's and it's not like anybody says you need to look at so and so and you need like normally the the bass player and the drummer is like 
they're the foundation oh of the house, right? Mm -hmm. The front, the front person, the lead singer, lead guitarist, they're out the front. And then when something starts to fall in the back, oh, you better believe, holy hell, like that's it. You, you got to stand front. You've got to stay front. You can't look back. If it's going down, you better stand front and do whatever you can do. People on the side, you can try and look at them. But, you know, there's this looking game of no one can teach. It, it's, it's not taught. It's a um, natural form of communication. And you do have your buddies that you can rely on to look at to know, oh, no, this person over here is being like, no. You know what I mean? Like you can you. It's a I weird, it's, it's like, we're all little monkeys out there and, and don't get mad at me for saying that people, but no, it but is, it's like, we're little tribes and we I have our people. Say about the band when the drummer got mad at the rhythm guitarist. Yeah. And he got up in the middle of a performance on the stage in the town that we were living in and said, I'm going to take these drumsticks and shove them up your nostril. <laughs> He watched the movie The Commitments. And, because yeah, and so they started to fight, and the audience stood up and they were like laughing and clapping because they thought it was an act. They really thought it was an act. And we we're like, oh, it wasn't. Boy. We we're done. No, and the bass wasn't. player went on the floor laughing, Nancy and the bass player. But I know, it was well, funny I, well I kept going. But but no, but that's the thing where you keep you keep um there's this weird thing of synergy of being able to look at each other but you know like you know people are also you know sight deprived and there's a there they get a feeling too there's we have a sixth sense i really believe we do i'm not trying to get woo woo here on a military show but i think I that if you don't dig sense. down into that sixth sense you're not going to make it through anything and that's really just about our capabilities of stretching what we have what would you say mike i mean you're you're the one who's you know, in the military understands everything on that level and been through it, you know, not us. We've just had weird life experiences, but that sixth sense, man, I'm hanging on to that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, it, um, and I think in a lot of ways, getting that sixth sense is an acquired skill. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's latent in almost everyone, but when you're in the culture and you're in the organization long enough and you start to adapt to the culture and you take on all of those um all those cultural practices on a metaphysical level it 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 changes your way of thinking and almost puts mm -hmm. you in sync with uh everyone else who's working towards the same goal and same mission and when you know how all those dynamics play out and how the organization works and how it functions as a whole. Uh, it makes it that much easier to be able to anticipate those problems and mm -hmm. uh, see those potential catch points before they ever really materialize. Yeah. Now, if you go out in nature and you study animals and watch what they do, then you get a real sense of a sixth sense, mm -hmm. how, where yeah. it comes from. And it, it's experience. Well, martial arts mm -hmm. teaches you that too. It's about focusing mm -hmm. and centering and yeah. breathing and being clear. You know, martial arts is great for that, man. I mean, come on. You know, Jean Claude Van Damme will tell you. He knows. I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. Hey, listen, Karate Kid too. I I still <laughs> love Karate Kid. Did you see the second one? Did you see the second one? See the second. 
Karate Kid, that whatever it came mm. out a few years ago or something. Yeah. I haven't yeah, seen so it. I, I saw movie. the original trilogy, the ones with Ralph Macchio. And, yeah, uh, I saw the original. Yeah, but yeah, then like the ones they remade now, like. Oh, yeah, the Cobra Kai. Is it yeah. good? So I've seen it? a few episodes and yeah, I mean, it is really good. Uh, you know, it, oh, it, okay. uh, it, it's it, it's actually a very good story arc, too, because. You know, when Cobra Kai uh, first opened up, I think for its first season, you know, you 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 see that the characters have uh, have morphed and changed over time because you know um, you have Daniel Larusso, and you know he's this you know high powered uh, high powered car dealership owner, and he's kind of become a little pompous and arrogant. But then you have Johnny, who is unmistakably looking for redemption, and you know you really see a deeper. Wow. Dem- Johnny Lawrence than you did in the original trilogy, and wow. uh, you know, and also um, also to add to the intrigue, you have Elizabeth Shue and Martin Cove also, also revising their characters. Oh, and they're in there. Oh, they're still yeah. in there. No, okay, I'm yeah. I'm gonna have to do it. Just I have to go back to my like you know my old school days and rewatch this because I was like always like no, they're gonna mess it up, you know. But anyway, going back to communication, if we do not bring up the Navajo code talkers, we're all going to get upset because okay. this is interesting. So um, can you explain that? Because we we all know, okay, the Navajo, we we have been to um, the Memorial, um, Veterans Memorial in Gallup, New Mexico. And so a lot of that history is documented in northern New Mexico um, from our experience. But Mike, uh, can you Give us an overview of how that all happened, because even when you think about communication and even when I was talking about that Civil War battle, we talked about the Battle of New Orleans, uh, the last episode and many, many episodes before that, because I can't stop talking about it. But I always find it interesting when Native Americans will side with us, you know, and even, you know, uh, Buffalo soldiers. Here we are, you know, we're bringing slaves into this country. And then can you please fight with us? You know, so. That's a level of communication that has to happen, obviously. Um, And then next we have the Navajo Code Talkers that tell tell everybody about them. Okay. Yeah. So I will preface it by saying that World War II was actually a uh, very good, it was a very good PR opportunity for the Native American community as a whole. Um, because you had a lot of the, you had a lot of the Native Americans who were drafted off of the reservations, and you had a good number of Native Americans who also volu- who, who also volunteered from the reservations, and they did not serve in segregated units. Um, they were fully racially integrated to serve alongside the white soldiers, and you know aside aside from them getting that good spot of PR, you know, you also had uh, some very high profile American Indians, such as Ira Hayes, who uh, mm-hmm. achieved fame as one of the flag raisers on, on Iwo Jima. He, he was a full-blooded Pima Indian. And, mm-hmm. you know, aside from that, you had some Navajo tribesmen who uh, were able to use their native language as a naval code in the Pacific theater towards the end end of that Pacific war. And it was, it was very interesting in the sense that, you know, this was, this was uh, 
the only naval code that the Japanese were never able to break. They were, na- they were never mm. able to decipher it. And part of the reason being is because, you know, the Navajo language itself did not have any specific vocabulary terms that were used to describe military machines, much less modern military machines. So you had different, uh, you, you essentially had a list of metaphors that were applied to each one of the operations uh, that that uh, the Navajo were assigned to, and yet all of these metaphors would correspond to would correspond to different military commands. They would they would describe different operations, different maneuvers, and stuff like that. And when you strung them all together, you could create a very clear picture on the receiving end of uh, what the message was intended to be and what uh, command it was trying to relay. And, you know, given that you had that, that, that layer of built-in encryption, just by virtue mm-hmm. of the linguistics itself, uh, made for a code that really drove the Japanese high command nuts. You know, they, uh, yeah. they, they spent so much time thinking to themselves, okay, of all the codes that we've had to deal with and every one that we've broken so far, what is this gibberish? It doesn't sound anything like mm-hmm. American it doesn't even sound like British English. What the heck are they talking about? Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. and uh, because you know, you would also have differences in the in the um, in the pronunciations and the intonations. It made it even harder for the Japanese to be able to decipher. And the fact that you could take an indigenous language and peg it to something that was so critical for an Allied victory in the Pacific Theater uh, was just an incredible windfall to the Native American community as a whole. And I think it really did a lot to, and I'm not saying that Native American relations were bad before, but it just made it that much better afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it, uh, mm-hmm. it, and elevated, uh, right. And it elevated, was elevated and, uh, the and, status. And, and Harry Truman was purported to uh, say to Ira Hayes mm-hmm. when, he, he and the other Iwo Jima flag raisers visited the White House. He was purported to say, Ira, you're more American than any of us. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's why he's my favorite that's, president. Oh, here we go. And we drove by his site the other day. Yeah. I know. Well, give him hell, Harry. That's well, it. I know. I, I, Yeah, well, you know, but that's the thing is so so many people have fought in wars in our country on our own land and then all, also the other wars, you know, um, and people had to come together that were supposed to be fighting each other to fight those wars. So I think when that kind of thing happens, when you're in those extreme, you know, situations, you do have to for, form a kinship and find a way to communicate because languages yeah. were also a barrier. Accents mm-hmm. are a barrier even, you mm-hmm. know, um, so it's it's an interesting thing on that. Um, so when you think also going back, we were using pigeons too. We had Morse code. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. That was a the Morse code. We can't forget Morse code was a big deal. That's where it I started. Mean, yeah. Tick 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 mm-hmm. tick tick tick. Yeah. I mean Abraham Lincoln used it to win the Civil War, mm-hmm. and he gave it credit. You know, he's, that's how he won the wars by using the telegraph. And didn't that also code. happen? Didn't Morse code also work in the pay of the pigs? The the Cuban Missile Crisis. Didn't they use Morse code at some point? I'm oh, thinking. Yeah. Of- um, it, well, yeah. I, I mean, it, it was a uh, it 
was really a standard practice for a lot of our ships at sea to use Morse code when they were communicating with each other. You know, it was a uh, it was a very it was a very cheap and reliable form of communication that uh, mm. you know that would work. You know, uh, even and especially when you, your your normal radio communications would go down. Because I was thinking that because that was I mean I always talk about you know Gary Slaughter that was on our show. He was there at the the end. What when you know JFK hung up and said, "That's it, we're done." Mm-hmm. And they met with the Russians. And they were all in their submarines, but they're like submerged up, right? And the Russians were dying literally. They they didn't. I think they didn't even have any air. Their heaters were overdoing it. They'd been in water for days. You know, please don't quote me on this, but it was like a rough ride for the Russians at this point. And met with the Americans and Gary Slaughter, who's been on our show a number of times, gets up there and he has to go out and say, hey, it's over. We can be friends. What can we do? And the language, this is the thing. The com- this is going back to the communication. The Russians are Russian. Here we are Americans, right? Mm-hmm. And he's trying. They had to communicate in a way, what can we do to help you? Because these guys were on their deathbed, literally, the Russians. Yet they were still going for it. Like they were still going for it and they needed bread. They had no food. So they wanted bread, cigarettes and coffee. I believe those were the three things they needed. And they're like, we have that. And he went to go tell, you know, someone behind him, go get them. And this was the big historic thing. This was the end of it. And one of our planes went over and dropped those lights so that the photographer could take a photo of a handshake of it's over. And it's like little firecracker things, flares. Sorry. Not a good choice. <laughs> flares. And the guy, the Russian guy is like, holy hell, we're doing this again. And he went to bolt because of that and thought it was starting up. And then because it was tenacious at the beginning, because they, were, they had to tell the Russians it was fine. And the Russians are ready to kill him, you know, and everybody <clears throat> on theirs. And it's like, and then when that guy came over, it was like, holy whatever <laughs> bleep 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 and mm-hmm. next thing you know they had to start all over again on and not being you know they're not speaking each other's language you know it's not like we have google translate in those days right. and so or you know they didn't have pigeons out on the water they had seagulls but you know but it happened it it's a crazy story that uh god everyone look up gary slaughter on amazon and get that book because it, it's insane what what they went through on our side and their side, and yet it, there was so much politic, like political stuff going, and that's the other weird thing. It's like what's going on politically and what what the troops are getting are sometimes two different things. Talking about communication, yeah. I didn't mm-hmm. say that, Mike. I did, <laughs> but it's true. You know, right? It's hard. Like now, I think it's a little bit easier, but back then, you didn't know what was going on in the White House. You know, half of the time, you know, um, back and especially back in the way, way back when, you know, but Mike, there's so much to talk about. How do you communicate in tanks and jets? And we've, I know we've touched on that all, all the different yeah. shows over the years with you, but like, mm-hmm. this is, I, can we do a part two and talk about the vehicles? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that next. Cause we've talked a little, you know, we've talked a lot today, <laughs> but Let's do part two. Let's do, uh, you know, the the fighter jets, you know, go back into 
the archives of your books and talk about tanks. Like how did, I know you played music in them, ACDC, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Hell yeah. Um, dude, you've got to like, seriously, that adrenaline has to be there. I would blast mm-hmm. that, you know? Um, but let's talk about communications in like all the, the, would you say they're armored machines, like vehicles, armored vehicles. Is that what you would call them? Yeah. Yes. Armored vehicles. Okay, let's do that next. That'd be cool. Cool. Everyone, uh, Mike's latest books, The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II, and then uh, Coyote Recon, The Forgotten Wars of Colonel J.D. Vanderpool. You got to go get that. Um, Mm. Honestly, what we love about Mike's books is, you know, we have no clue about anything, as you know, listening to our shows, we have no clue. But he brings in that human element of, the people that are out there serving and the people who behind the machines too, like, you know, fighter jets and F-14s and 15s and things I didn't even know existed. So like you learn all this history through personal stories. So everyone, whether you're in the military or not, can enjoy his books and get to understand things a little bit better than what we probably know. Um, because of the stories of the people. So go to MikeGuardia.com. Also, Mike is on our show every first Monday for our Military Monday show. So you can keep up with us at BigBlendRadio.com. We're looking forward to more books from Mike coming out this year. He's got 25 going. He's got more in the hopper. So uh, Mike, yeah, you got a lot going on. Are you busy? You're writing? <laughs> you're getting these proofread and done? Like yes, you're ma'am. on a deadline. Good. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're ready. You know, <laughs> we can't have these big gaps. In between Not now, Lisa. Right. I know. Well, we're ready for the next <laughs> one. I'm just saying. All yes, right, ma'am. Mike. Almost done. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Give, just tell everybody what's the next one. Give them the little sneak peek. Okay, sneak preview. This one is called Fire in the Hole Tales of uh, Combat in Vietnam with the 1st Engineer Battalion. And uh, specifically, it is focusing on Charlie Company of the 1st Engineer mm. Battalion and ah. uh, their role their role as combat engineers. And uh, these are, these are the guys who march uh, right alongside the infantry and they, uh, they, they clear minefields, they lay minefields and they Mm -hmm. uh, set barbed wire obstacles and uh, do a lot of demolitions and blow things up, especially uh, if the enemy is about to overrun a friendly position. So, yeah. Oh, all right. So a lot of good stories. You can oh. share a little bit on our next show, right? When we talk communication, if you're like planting bombs and stuff, like you need to have communication on that, right? Mm-hmm. There's going to be some of that. Of and and now it also makes me think we have to have, you know, helicopter communication, even like what you were talking about, how your feet can't look, you know, you can't show your soles yeah. of your feet and stuff. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. How did that happen in Vietnam? All right. Next time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, everybody. Cliffhanger. Thanks so much, Mike. You take care. Thank you, everyone, for listening. All righty. Lisa and Nancy, thank you so much for having me on. It's our pleasure. Thank you, Mike.